28. Genesis 28 is a part of the story of Jacob's life. Now, uh, most about half of Genesis is really the story of Jacob's life. And we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the background of that story, but this story has us coming to be with Jacob in a moment of, of crisis in his life when he's on the run. So hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 28, starting in verse 10 and continuing through verse 22. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give to you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jacob's story is a trickster story. Now, that's a a literary term. Maybe you've never heard of it, but a trickster story is probably something you've heard before. Maybe you've heard stories about Br'er Rabbit uh, from the South or, or stories from West Africa about that spider, Anansi, who does all sorts of tricks or Or maybe you've read Shakespeare and you remember Puck, this uh, little guy who goes around doing crazy stuff. All these guys are tricksters, and all of them are the heroes of their stories, but they're these strange heroes. They're heroes that won't stop at anything to get their way. They will lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal their way out of anything. And one of my favorite tricksters out there, which uh, some of you might have heard of, is this guy called Wile E. Coyote. Wiley Coyote from the Looney Tunes. Now, maybe some of you are a little too old of that, but you saw your grandkids or your kids watching Looney Tunes on TV. Wiley Coyote is this trickster who's always trying to catch that roadrunner bird. And he'll build a, a, a tunnel through a, a mountain. Or he'll, he'll build a, a tunnel through, the des- through a mountain, and then he'll paint over some sort of barrier so that the, the bird will crash into it. He'll build this mountain of dynamite just to get the bird. He'll, he'll do anything just to get him, but it never, ever works. Every time, the bird escapes. And eventually, his tricks catch up with not the bird, but with him. 
The coyote, not Roadrunner, is the one who falls into the trap. He's the one who gets blown up when the mountain explodes. He's the one who runs off the cliff and suddenly notices that there's nothing underneath him and then falls down into the ravine. Wiley Coyote is a trickster, and he is pretty funny too, I think. And and we love a good trickster story, which is maybe why we kind of like the stories about Jacob here in the Bible, because he's a trickster all his life, and now his lies and his deceit is starting to catch up with him. It's time for him to get out of Dodge. It's time for him to escape. He's on the run. Uh, Once when he was younger, he tricked his older brother Esau into selling his birthright over a pot of beans. And then more recently, he tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that was meant for his older brother. And his mother Rebecca helped him out and, and kind of guided him through the trick. But he was the one who went through it. He was the one who cheated his brother out of a blessing. And it's no wonder that Esau is after him now with this murderous rage. He's out to get him, and if Jacob stays near home, he's going to die. So Jacob is on the run, and he's left everything he's known, everything he has, everywhere he belongs. He doesn't take anything with him, not people, not animals, not servants, not not gifts. He's going uh, far north to Haran, where his uncle Laban lives. It's, it's It's a long journey, a couple hundred miles from where he was born, and he's trying to get there with nothing on his back. Now, this is a whole other plot that his mother came up with. Uh, he's going there on the excuse that he's going to try to find a bride near his uncle Laban's house, but really he's just trying to escape. And his, his father blesses him and sends him on his way, and Jacob travels light. He doesn't take a pillow. He doesn't take a blanket, probably no tent to sleep in, no traveling companions to guard him or protect him. And he takes to the hill country. He doesn't go the easy way along the Dead Sea. No, he goes north from Beersheba, straight up through the mountains, through Jerusalem, through Judea. Uh, And it's a good way to go if you're trying to escape. It's where King David went to escape from Saul, who was trying to kill him. And he walks up and down the hills for maybe 50 miles. How, How long would that take you? Two, three, four days to walk. And he finally gets to this place called Bethel. It's down in a valley when the hills suddenly come down. And and there he thinks maybe he can rest Maybe he's far enough away from home that he can lay down his head and get a rest in the middle of the night. So he, he gets there and he, he figures he's probably safe. He's too tired to care about any wild animals that might get him in the night. He's alone. He's in the dark. He's far from home. And he is abandoned by his family and he's abandoned them, which is one of the worst things you can do in Middle Eastern culture. It means you're as good as dead. It means you're defenseless. It means you're adrift. And so he lays his head down on a stone and he falls asleep. Now, you'd think that Jacob would uh, not sleep so well under the stars. Maybe he'd lay awake in the night and look up at the stars and wonder, am I guilty? Have I done wrong? Have I sinned against my father and my brother? His conscience should keep him awake all night. Maybe he'll look up at the stars and realize it's all his fault. Maybe he'll turn around and go back and apologize to his brother and make it right with his father. But no, Jacob does not do that. He lays his head down and he sleeps. And I'd like to think, although the scripture doesn't say it, but I'd like to think he sleeps like a baby. Although babies don't sleep that well. Trust me, I know. (laughs) And he's relied on his cleverness and his cunning and his connections all his life, and it's been working for him. Jacob is a trickster. He's got what he's wanted, and surely that's going to continue working for him too. Because he's no hero in this story. He's the trickster. He's out to do anything to get his way. And, and we might smile and laugh at what Jacob does to, to, do, to get his way, but they've caused real harm to other people. He, he's relied on his own wits all his life instead of on the God of his father and his grandfather. 
And if we're like anyone in this story, we're probably most like Jacob. Like, we may have been on the run sometimes from the consequences of our actions. Maybe you're on the run from some harsh words you said to somebody. Maybe you're avoiding a a tough conflict that you need to have, a tough conversation. Maybe you're on the run from a a relationship that causes pain or conflict. Uh, Maybe you've uh, had a conversation with someone and it didn't go so well, and you wonder if you're ever going to get along with that person again. And some of us run away to something else, to something that's a a poor substitute for what we had. It could be uh, alcohol or drugs or, or TV or social media, anything. Do not think about that other thing. Maybe we are a bit like Jacob. And Jacob, who is on the run, what he needs, says one pastor and author, Frederick Buechner, what he needs is for God to give him what he deserves. What he needs is a good scare. What he needs is a a good look at the hellish pain he's caused in other people's life and the consequences that he faces. He needs God to set him straight. Uh, He needs what the author says is holy hell. And what he gets, says Buechner, is holy heaven. And this marvelous lesson thrown in for good measure. See, because Jacob may sleep like a baby, and in his dream he, he looks up and he sees heaven. He sees God's reality breaking into the world. It, it looks like a staircase that connects heaven to earth, a breaking into the world, a, a God's reality connected to earthly reality. Now, Jacob has been living his whole life according to earthly reality. He lives by his cunning wits, by his crafty schemes, by his deceit, and, and suddenly here he gets this glimpse of God and God's reality. And, and, and he's in this thin place, this thin space where the, the line between heaven and earth is blurred by the very presence of God. And he sees angels going up and down the staircase. They're God's messengers going out to do God's bidding in the world. See, God is active in the world, and Jacob never knew it until this moment. And then he sees God's presence. Now, some translations put God's presence at the top of the staircase, as if looking down from heaven to earth. And that is uh, probably the way most of us picture it. If you picture a staircase to heaven, where would you put God? Probably at the top. But some scholars think that God's presence here in the text is not up there, not out there, but right here beside him. If you look at your NIV Bible, it's footnoted in the bottom. The Lord stands there beside him. The Lord stands right there beside him and speaks to him. And look more closely at what God says to Jacob. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. See, the first thing God does is to make it crystal clear to Jacob uh, who he is, that, that the God of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob is the same God. And Jacob has not met this God yet in his whole life. God has not spoken to him directly until this point. Now, we can guess that he heard stories from his grandfather Abraham and from his father Isaac. He knows the the content of the blessing that God gave to Abraham and then to Isaac. God promised them land and descendants. So it's not surprising then that the blessing that Jacob receives from God is the exact same one that his father and grandfather get. I will give you and your descendants this land on which you are lying And he's lying on the ground that is close to the agricultural heart of Canaan. It's some of the best land there, rich and fertile country for growing crops and raising sheep. 
And the third thing God says is God promises many descendants, like the dust of the earth, descendants who spread out in every direction. And then the fourth thing God says is to, to promise uh, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is this priestly thing. They are blessed to be a blessing. I, I, we've been over this before. They are blessed to bless others. As God said to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So these first uh, four parts of God's blessing to Jacob are pretty familiar to us and familiar to him. But then God adds a personal touch. He says in verse uh, 15, I am with you and will watch over you wherever I go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. See, Jacob gets a personal covenant blessing, a promise from God. This is the fifth part. It's the promise of presence and protection. God will be with Jacob. He's the one who's done it, all, done it alone all his life, and he will never be alone again. God will protect Jacob, which he needs because he is defenseless and adrift without his family. And God will bring him back, which Jacob needs to fulfill God's covenant in the land. His mother, Rebekah, desperately hopes for him to come back in just a few days, maybe a few weeks. And Jacob doesn't come home for 20 years, long after his mother has passed away. And finally, God repeats that this promise of presence continues until the whole covenant is fulfilled. And Jacob doesn't deserve any of this. He's a trickster. He's a liar and a cheater. He's done more wrong than, any, than most families and people can handle. And yet God blesses him. And not just with any blessing, he gives him the full blessing of Abraham and Isaac plus more. He gets Abraham's blessing plus this extra bit. He gets the added promise of God's presence. God didn't promise that to Abraham or Isaac. And luckily for Jacob, he he doesn't get blessed because of who he is, but because of who God is. He gets God's presence standing right there beside him. He gets to see into divine reality, this reality that will be true for the rest of his life. God's presence right there beside him. And it's no wonder that when Jacob wakes up from the dream, uh, he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. See, God is not above, not beyond, not far away from him. God is in this place. Now, the funny thing is, though, is uh, Jacob's instinctive response to this revelation of God's presence is to bargain with God again. If you look at verse 20, he says, if God will be with me, if God will watch over me, if God will uh, give me food to eat, if God protects me and brings me safely home, then the Lord will be my God. Then this stone I will set up as God's house. Then, uh, then I will give you, uh, of, of all you give me, I will give you a tenth. <laughs> Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. I mean, seriously, after all that God has done for you, this is your promise to God? That's one way to interpret it, for sure, that that he is setting conditions for God. And the other way, and it's a little hard to tell from the text which exactly is the meaning, is that he trusts that God will do and is already doing these things that he promised. God will protect him. God will be with him. God will watch over them because God already has, and God will bring him back home. And he's so sure of this that it's happening even now and will continue to happen in the future that he makes these promises to God. You, the Lord, will be my God. And I will set up this place to be your house, Bethel, the house of the Lord, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. 
I think we can read it both ways and see Jacob both as this man who is a trickster and a cheat and a liar and always trying to get the upper hand even with God and yet he is someone who is faithful and trusts God and knows that God's presence is the most important thing in his life because surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. God shows up. God reveals what has always been true in Jacob's life that the Lord is in this place. That God's presence fills the ordinary places just as much as he fills the extraordinary ones. That God is with us even when we don't know it, even when we don't feel it, even when we don't experience it. God is with us even when we don't deserve it. God is with Jacob, and the God of Jacob is with us. Now, we know this is true because of Jesus, Because at the end of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus preaches this very story of Jacob's ladder. Now, he's meeting Nathanael, this uh, Hebrew in whom there is no deceit, this man who is quite unlike Jacob the cheater. And Nathanael, who comes to Jesus, is so impressed by Jesus' spiritual insight that he declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus Jesus promises that he will see greater things than that. Like Jacob, he will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there's one difference with the story of Jacob. You see, it's it's Jesus. Jesus puts himself in the story. And where does he put himself in the story? The presence of God right there beside Jacob. He is the I am, the Lord, the very presence of God made flesh and dwelling among them. And like Jacob, we can declare, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it because that's the whole point of worship. That's the whole point of the word and the sacraments that God promises to be here, present. God promises to show up because God already is here, already there, already everywhere. Are you aware of it? Uh, And I don't just mean on Sundays at church or, or when you hear that song in the car or you read that passage or you pray on your knees. Because worship trains us to see God's presence everywhere, every day. So can you say, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it? Can you say it in the kitchen? God is there. In the garage, God is there. In, in the car, God is there. In the workshop, God is there. At your desk, God is there. On the road, God is there. God is there. God is there. And that's God's promise to Jacob. That's God's promise to us, like a blessing to Jacob's children, to all of God's people, to all who call on God's name. I am with you. I am with you always. I am. I am the Lord It's the God who Moses meets at the burning bush while he's working. It's the God who meets Jacob in his dream right here. And it is the God who we meet every day, today, in worship and every day for the rest of our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. I am the Lord. You are our God and in your presence, we, we stand in awe, for surely the Lord is in this place, and we were not aware of it. May we, like Jacob, have our eyes opened to see your reality breaking into our reality, your presence right beside us, wherever we go. 
We pray that you may show yourself to us through your spirit, through your people, through your creation, and that we may be made aware of it. Unveil our eyes, open our hearts, uh, our ears to see, to hear, to love you, to know you, that we may be your people, your people who are in your presence, aware of you, praising you, giving worship to you, standing in awe at you and what you've done. For you are here, and you are there, and you are everywhere. For you are the God who is with us. We praise you and thank you through Jesus Christ, by whose presence we know that you are with us, and in the Holy Spirit, who is your very presence in our hearts. Amen. I'd like to offer a, 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 a special music song to you all that I, was on my heart this week. It's not in the bulletin, but it's a song I grew up singing in the Dominican Republic called Dios está aquí, God is here today. It's just a short little song, uh, a classic song from a couple decades ago in Mexico that speaks of God's presence in our lives. And I'll sing it as best I can in Spanish and in English. Turn as when I see. 
I'd like to invite you all to rise in body or in spirit to sing, Surely the Presence of the Lord. Another